All right, so during World War II, there were two important days. There weren't just only two important days, but two of some of the most important days were D-Day and VE Day. Maybe you've heard of those, right? What is D-Day? This is interactive. This is not me, kind of rhetorical question. Oh, the historian, here we go. What did you say? Okay, so June 6, 1944, year before the war ends, at least in the Europe front. So like, but what does that mean? What is D-Day? Okay, invasion of France, right? So when Allied forces go into Normandy, France, uh, to take down uh, the Nazis, right? So it was kind of the beginning of the end of the Western front of the war in Europe, okay? It was the decisive blow that started in motion the, begin or the beginning of the end of the war on the Western Front. What was VE Day? Victory in Europe Day. There it is. It was finally when the war was over in Europe, in the, in the Western Front. That was when it was. A lot of times, theologians will use that analogy of the difference between D-Day as the decisive blow that began the end of the war that finished on VE Day. They'll use that as an analogy uh, for, a sp for our spiritual war, to talk about our spiritual war. That Christ on the cross, defeating sin and death, that was D-Day. It was the decisive battle that began the end of the war against sin and death. V-E-Day is whenever Christ returns, bringing final judgment. So the, the time between his resurrection and his return, though, is war for us, right? It's warfare for us. And so for the Christian, we live between these days. The decisive blow has been given, and we know that we're awaiting that final day when victory is going to be ours, uh, whenever Christ returns. And until then, we are at war, and this war is in our hearts. Satan has dealt, has been dealt a final blow, but he still prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Paul even talks about this in Ephesians 4 the passage that we're going to be spending a lot of time in today, not Ephesians 4, but in Ephesians 6. He actually says in Ephesians 4 that the devil is looking for an opportunity to get a foothold in your life. So he's been dealt a fatal wound, but he's very much engaged in taking you down. And so the church isn't in retreat. It's not on the defensive. It's actually on the offensive. Matthew 16 Jesus says to his disciples that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's how he's going to build his church. He's going to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Think about that image. The gates of hell. The gates of hell. A gate is something that is used to keep people out, right? It's a defensive mechanism. You, right, ultimately the gate is not going to prevail against God's church, against its enemies, the church is going to be too much for it. It's on the offensive. Historically, theologians have spoken of the church between Christ's resurrection and return as the church militant. Christ's victory is our victory. The church is militant because it's a war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what they're getting at. Now, certainly, we are the church triumphant because Christ has triumphed over the grave, yet the church is militant in this war. The good news for those in Christ is that victory is certain. And that final victory, right, that final victory is coming. Christ is going to return. God has not left us to ourselves to fight this war. He's actually left us not with flabby armor, but actually his own armor, which we're going to look at 
this morning. Over the past couple of weeks, we've considered the reality of spiritual warfare. Christ's victory over his enemies, we looked at that two weeks ago. We looked at the power of the Holy Spirit in our fight against sin last week whenever Jacob came in and taught from Romans 6 through 8. Now, this morning, we're going to spend some time looking at the armor of God from Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. You've got that on your handout right there. It looks like this. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, okay? We are going to spend the majority of our time in that passage, and I'm just going to walk you through that passage and show you how it relates to your life, to your normal battles with sin. Not the big sins that they get all the hype, right? The drug, sex, and rock and roll. That's, you know, that's not what we're talking about this morning. We're going to be looking at fear. We're going to be looking at anger. All those kind of overlooked sins, those respectable sins, as Jerry Bridges talks about in his book. And so we're going to spend the majority of our time in Ephesians 6. Um, And the point of that is for us to understand that there are really three big categories of sin that we all commit and yet often, well, really two big categories that we're going to look at this morning that we often commit and yet tolerate with. And so how do we put on the armor of God as we address those sins? So point number one, God's armor explained. So what I want to do is I want to work through that passage explaining what this armor is. And then I want to apply that to fear and to anger. All right? That's where we're going. Point number one, God's armor explained. Someone read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. All right, so Ephesians 6 right here. This is the last passage in the book of Ephesians, right? That placement in and of itself is kind of the summary of the book, kind of getting toward the end. Really, the climax of the book shows its importance. It's important to see that this is really the crescendo of the whole letter, of everything that Paul has said up to this point. And we see that with the first word right there, the word finally. So nose in the book right here. Nose in your little paper if you don't have a Bible. Right here, the word finally. Everything is building toward this. It's the climax. As it's been said, the first half of Ephesians in chapters 1 through 3 focuses on Christ's strength for us and in us. 
The back half of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, focuses on how we live according to that strength. Oftentimes, what you're going to find in Paul's writings are that he's going to give you teaching or explanation on the first half of a letter that he writes. And then he's going to begin to apply that in the back half. That's exactly what he's doing. He's focusing upon Christ's strength for us and in us. And then in the back half, he is focusing on how we live according to that strength. So throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul is giving us a picture of what a spirit-filled life actually looks like. And this life is not going to be exempt from spiritual warfare. Instead, because we live between Christ's resurrection and return, there will be war. There will be blood, so to speak, if you know of that movie, which is an incredible movie. But we're not going there. Um, So we need a strategy for fighting this war, which Paul gives us right here. And so let's just walk through the text. Look at verse 10. First command, what is it? Verse 10, what's the first command? Just look right there. Be strengthened by the Lord. That's right. You probably have different kind of uh, translations of it, but in essence, it's just saying, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. This is no small, small strength of the Lord. Notice where your strength comes from in this fight. It's not you. It's not you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps to fight this war. If that were the case, you would be utterly destroyed. It's not you. You're not alone in this fight. Your strength is in Christ. You can't stand against literally the cosmic powers of darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You're not going to be able to do that. But Christ is because he's triumphed over them. At this point, right, that's the point, really, of the whole passage. This is it, verse 10. This is the point of the passage. This fight, right, is an insurmountable battle that you need Christ's strength for, and that's the point he's trying to communicate. The one by whom and for whom all things were created is the one who actually strengthens you for this fight. If you remember from Colossians chapter 1, Right, the one by whom and for whom everything was created. That's the strength you've got at your back in this fight. The one who triumphed over his enemies on the cross, who reigns victoriously as the Lord over all, is the one who strengthens you by his power for this fight. And that ultimately should give you confidence because you stand in Christ's victory already. <laughs> the cross has already happened. And so you already stand in his victory. Matter of fact, you're rocking the victory armor, so to speak, that he gives to you. And the good news is that God supplies this strength to his people, and he has made it available to them by his spirit, which we talked about last week. And Paul prays this exact same thing throughout his book. And that's the one thing that you're going to notice, right? It's kind of the climax of the entire book right here. And Paul has already mentioned a lot of these things already. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul prays that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. In Ephesians 3, verse 16, Paul prays that God would grant them to be strengthened with power in their inner being. By who? By his spirit, through his spirit. And he concludes this prayer four verses later, in Ephesians 3, verse 20, with these words, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond 
all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. He's able to do above and beyond all that we ask. This is the one who strengthens us. But now the question becomes, well, how, do I, how, do I, how am I to be strengthened in the Lord? That's the question we've got to ask in the next verse. Look at verse 11. How does he say that we're strengthened? Verse 11. How are we strengthened? By putting on the whole armor. Fascinating, isn't it? He says, be strengthened, act of God. And now he says, how are you to be strengthened? You put on the whole armor. We have a responsibility in this battle. You've actually got to do something. You've got to put on the whole armor of God. And so not only do we need God's strength for this battle, but he also provides it. This is not something that we construct. It's nothing less than God's own armor itself. And we've got the responsibility to put it on. That word for armor right there isn't necessarily speaking about protective armor, right? As if it's like a Roman centurion or a Roman soldier that we're to have this image in our head about. In reality, it's actually speaking about the Messiah from passages in Isaiah and throughout the Psalms, which we're going to look at in a minute. That word for armor right there is really getting at complete weaponry. Put on the whole armor, the complete weaponry that we need to go to battle. Because this is God's armor, we are fully equipped with everything that you need for war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. You are. Often we think we're not, but we are. You literally have the armor of God given to you. And so if we incur losses in this battle, it is not due to faulty gear. <laughs> it's not due to faulty gear. Instead, it's because we don't either use the weapons rightly, or we actually just don't do what Paul says. We just don't put on the whole armor. We're losing battles, we're either not putting on the whole armor, or we're just not using it rightly. And we all lose battles, by the way. Right? You're going to lose some. We all lose those battles from time to time. But before we go to Isaiah and look at kind of this messianic figure who is decked out in armor, coming ready on a mission for redemption and judgment, before we get there, let's look at verse 11. What's the purpose that he says in verse 11 for putting on the whole armor. What's the purpose? Just look right there. Yeah, that's exactly right. The purpose is so you can stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil is a schemer. He's a schemer. And the purpose of his schemes are your destruction. Yet the purpose of you putting on God's armor is to withstand those schemes. Paul also gives us another reason to put on this armor in verse 12. What's that reason in verse 12? Look in verse 12. What's the reason that he gives? Yeah, it's not against flesh and blood, but who's it against? Yeah, they cause you to... Yeah, cosmic powers of darkness and spiritual forces of evil, right? That whole big long line. Talking about the same thing. Yeah, that might want to freak you out a little bit. But the reality is, is that one of the reasons is that this struggle, why you've got to put on the whole armor of God is it's not against flesh and blood. This battle is not against some human opposition in all its weakness. Right? The armies of this world are weak 
in comparison to the heavenly forces of evil, the spiritual forces of evil. They are weak. This battle is a cosmic battle. It's otherworldly. It's against the advancement of the gospel in whatever way, shape, or form. And so this is a spiritual battle. That's what this is. And so it's a far deadlier kind than just some human opposition. So because of this opposition, Paul gives the central command again, verse 13. What is it? What's the central command? Verse 13. He gets, yeah, he, he gets at the main point. Take up the full armor of God in order to stand against it. So we've seen that this warfare is just an everyday part of life. When you get up in the morning, the smoke of war ought to go up from your soul. Right? It ought to go up from your soul. We take the fight to the darkness in the Lord's strength by the power of the Spirit that we talked about last week. And we do that every single day. We do that minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. And in verses 14 through 20, Paul further explains how we take our stand against evil. He mentions six pieces of armor, six pieces for this fight that come from Isaiah and the Psalms. I want to look at each of these pieces. You've got them there in your handout. Each piece of this armor. So how do we put on the whole armor of God? And what even is that armor? That's what we're looking at. Number one, the belt of truth, verse 14. Paul is really picking up this belt image from Isaiah 11.5, where the Messiah is going to invade the earth filled with the spirit of wisdom around his waist in all that he does. He's filled with the spirit of wisdom beyond measure. He comes ready to destroy the wicked and execute justice for his people. The belt is meant to show us that the Messiah is a warrior fastened around his waist with righteousness and faithfulness. The belt of truth, right? Fastened around his waist. He is on the offensive. Isaiah's words are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. This truth is what Paul has already talked about throughout Ephesians, right? What is that truth? It's the belt of truth, but what even is the truth? It's the gospel from Ephesians 1.13. It's, it's the truth that Christ triumphed over the grave. He triumphed over his enemies and through his resurrection from the grave. In Ephesians 4.21, Paul says that the truth is in Jesus and that we're to speak the truth to one another in love as a part of becoming more and more like Jesus. In Ephesians 4.15, he says that we're to speak the truth in love to one another. In short, the truth is ultimately just a part of it's, it's all of Scripture. That's what the truth is. It's all of Scripture that serves as a witness to Jesus. So think about that. If you're going to fight against these spiritual forces of evil, then you've what? <laughs> what do you need? Okay. But specifically the belt of truth. What, do you, what are you going to need? What are you going to need? You're going to need to know the truth. I'm sorry, I'm trying to play like something's in my pocket. You know, I'm like, you've got to guess what it is, my bad. Uh, but you're going to need the truth, which means that you've got to know what the truth is. Otherwise, you're just going to be going around being deceived by lies. And so the question is, well, do you actually know the truth? Do you know the truth of God's word? If you're not going to be duped by the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil, then you're going to have to set your mind to know God's word. Only if we know God's word are you going to be able to live out God's word and stand against the schemes of the devil? You see how important that is? Knowing the word of God? I know we talk a lot about it at UBC. 
And I know, like, central to so much of what we do is the Word of God. But realistically, when you look at your life, would you say that central to your life is understanding the Word so that you may better love Christ and live for Him? Are you growing in your understanding of the Word? How are you seeking to do that? I think it'd be helpful for you to consider even just meeting up with other students throughout the week just to regularly read the scriptures. Do that multiple times a week. If you're struggling to get in the word, do that multiple times a week so that you're holding yourself accountable to have a meeting with somebody else to read the word. Consider getting a Bible reading plan. So often, people will not pick up the scriptures because they don't have a time, a place, and a plan to read the scriptures. Well, I'll just get to it later. But who in the world wants to read the Bible at midnight, for crying out loud, before you go to bed, other than Jacob Honeycutt? Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to do that. And so don't do that. <laughs> Come up with a time, a place, and a plan and stick to it. Pay attention during sermons. Oh, man, this is tough. Because you've just sat in here for 45 minutes, and now you're going to have to go into another, like, sermon and sit in that. But the reality is, is that you need that word. He is going to exposit that word and apply it to your lives. And so pay attention whenever you hear the preaching of the word. Don't just kind of be a passive observer, but just actively engage with it. Try to engage with it as, as he's preaching. Ultimately, we cannot love what we don't know. You do recognize that. You cannot love what you do not know. And the way to loving Jesus is knowing Jesus. One, or secondly, the breastplate of righteousness. The image of the breastplate of righteousness comes from Isaiah 59, verse 17, where sin, where we get this picture of sin and darkness reigning over God's people who are in misery. And they are given into their sin, right? They are the ones who are committing sin, who have created this darkness. And then finally, the Lord himself shows up bringing wrath and mercy. Mercy for those who turn from sin, destruction for those who don't. And though the breastplate actually protects, this picture is really where God himself is on an offensive mission, decked out in this righteous body armor, ready to right wrongs. That's this picture. It's fulfilled ultimately in Christ. Paul is wanting us to picture Christ's righteousness in action. That's what he's wanting us to picture. He is the righteous one of God who does what is right, good, and true, and helpful. And by his death for our sin, his righteousness became ours through faith. Christ's righteousness protects us from what our sins deserve, and yet also arms us with the ability to be able to do what is right in this life, to be able to live a righteous life. We can't do that without the righteousness of Christ being sacrificed for us, given over to us, through his death for us. And so we put on this breastplate by doing what is right according to God's word. This is what Paul means in Ephesians 5, verses 8 through 10, by living as children of the light. We reject what's evil, we pursue what is good, right, and true. Ultimately, it just means living in obedience to Jesus. That's what it means. Pretty simple. Third, feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is really central to all of Paul's letter in Ephesians. Just as he wrote in Ephesians 2, that it's by grace through faith that you have been saved. Right? This is the gospel of peace. It reconciles us to God 
into one another, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 3. When you get to Ephesians 3, not only have we been reconciled to God, but now we're actually being reconciled to one another because we've been reconciled to God. We cannot be reconciled to one another if we've not been reconciled to God. And this compels us to go to declare this gospel to those living in darkness among the nations. In, in Isaiah 52, 7, these feet, this picture is a feet bringing the good news of peace to God's people. These feet belong to none other than the Lord himself who brings comfort. He brings redemption to his people. How does he do that? The next chapter, Isaiah 53. You remember what Isaiah 53 says. What's that chapter about? The suffering servant, who is the Messiah, who is Jesus. And so we are on the march. Our feet are sandaled and ready to declare the gospel of peace to all nations. We're looking for and making the most of opportunities to, uh, to declare the gospel to the lost. But are you ready to do that? Are you equipped to do that? If not, I think one of the most helpful things is just brushing up on your understanding of what the gospel is. Get the book, What is the Gospel? Little black book, it's wonderful. We can get you a copy for free. You don't have to pay for that. As well, I think just evangelism training, getting trained in evangelism. Joy, myself, many others in here regularly seek to do that, building relationships with others and sharing the gospel with them. Oftentimes, we overthink evangelism. Like, it's got to be like steps one, two, and three, and then I, after I get to that point, I've got to get to steps four, five, and six, and then I'm there. That's just not how it works, right? You need to understand the gospel, and if you know the gospel, start building relationships and having conversations with others and pray that God would open a door for you to be able to enter into a gospel conversation. Four, shield of faith. Verse 16, as we fight this battle, it's not going to be easy. Instead, the devil is going to fight back, shooting his arrows, which are his lies, against us. He wants to get you to doubt God's goodness and trustworthiness. Where else did we see that in Scripture? We've already talked about it in here. Where else did we see that? There it is, Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve, right? Spilled that all over me. Um, not smooth whatsoever. Uh, Adam and Eve. He wants to get them to doubt God's goodness and his trustworthiness. Did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden when he just said just this one? They had all the trees. And yet this shield of faith is meant to protect us as a defensive mechanism against Satan's lies. But where does it come from? It comes from the Psalms. Man, if you read the Psalms, the image of God being a shield is all over the place. You go look at Psalm 18, and it's just like one safe play. You know, it's like one kind of language for like safety after another to talk about God. He is my refuge. He is my strength. He is my fortress. He is my rock. He is my shield. Over and over and over and over again. Just fumbles out of his mouth. And yet, that picture in Psalm 18 is a messianic psalm that speaks about the Messiah headed out to war as one who is shielded from his enemies and actually strengthened to pursue them. Once again, it's, offensive. it's an offensive picture. We take up the shield of faith by trusting in Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we live a life of trust and reliance upon him. That's what it looks like to take up the shield of faith. 
you might be kind of like depressed right now. You know, I'm not giving you like a 12-step process to putting on the armor of God. And I'm like, it's just super hyper-spiritual. Like, it's just, you know, you trust the Lord in all circumstances. You rest in Him. But that's what it looks like. And friend, if you've not trusted in Christ, understand that you have no shield about you. You are unprotected from the arrows of Satan. You do recognize that. From the arrows of your own sin, the world and all of its agenda coming against you, and from the devil himself. You are unprotected. You don't have a shield. But you can, thankfully, by turning from your sin and trusting in Christ. You can have this shield of faith. Turn to him, the one who's the deliverer and the protector of your soul. Number five, the helmet of salvation. We got to get it booking. Now that we've dressed, we're dressed in armor, we grab our final two pieces of equipment, which are the helmet and the sword. Throughout Paul's letter, he's spoken of this salvation as a gift. In Ephesians 1, verse 13, he calls it the gospel of our salvation. Ephesians 2, 5, he says that we've been saved by grace, even though that we're dead in our trespasses in our sins. Christ came to save the lost. If you are a believer, you are a living proof of that. He came to save. We were dead in our sins, and now we've been made alive in Christ. This picture of the helmet and the sword of the Spirit comes from Isaiah 59. Well, or the, really, the helmet comes from Isaiah 59, 17. We've already looked at, at Isaiah 59. Israel is given in to their sin. The picture is dark. It's bleak. They're in misery. All seems lost until the Lord comes as a warrior of salvation for his people to deliver them from their evil, underhanded ways. We put on the helmet of salvation by reminding ourselves that for us, there is always light in darkness. There is always life in death. There is always hope in hopelessness. There is always certainty in uncertainty, just like the world pandemic that we're enduring right now. You have that, the blessing of God, the salvation of your souls. Number six, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the Spirit and the Word actually work in tandem with one another. Paul is pulling this image from Isaiah 49, where the Messiah's mouth is said to be like a sharp sword. And it expresses the wisdom of the Spirit to destroy evil and to actually bring peace. We see Jesus as the fulfillment of this, as the Word of God made flesh, who wielded the sword of the Word against the devil in the wilderness. Do you remember that? Matthew chapter 4. Jacob talked about that, I believe, two weeks ago. He's showing you how to wield the, the sword of the Spirit. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4, 12, that the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's incredible. You may think that you see the word. The word utterly sees and exposes every facet of your heart, every intention, every thought. It cuts between the bone and the marrow. It's able to do that because the Spirit is taking it and shining the spotlight of God's word upon any darkness within your soul. The expression of our faith in response to God's word happens ultimately through prayer. Did you notice that in verses 18 through 20? That's how we put the word into practice. Prayer for ourselves and for others, as Paul models in the final verses of this passage. Prayer is ultimately your faith going public. That's what it is. It's the expression of your faith toward God. 
And the content of our prayers is God's word. That's what we bring back to God. We're praying God's will over people's lives, over our own lives. Overall, you get the picture. We're able to make war because Christ has already won. You get the picture. He's given us his victory armor to join him in battle, and we strengthen ourselves in him by walking as children of the light. But how do we put that into practice in our fight against sin? That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at. Not the heavy hitters of sin, right? But those sins that we're prone to tolerate with that we don't think oftentimes are anything major. Those respectable sins that can be subtle. Think of it this way. Say you bought some new ink. Maybe you're a fountain pen owner. Y'all even know what a fountain pen is, for crying out loud? All right, I'm just making sure. Maybe that wasn't going to hit, but maybe it will. Fountain pens, right? I mean, this is totally nerddom. I'll never forget when I was in seminary, everybody was all geeked out about fountain pens. thought it was the weirdest thing ever. Um, but fountain pens, right? You've got to have ink for these fountain pens. But say you purchase some brand new ink for a fountain pen that someone just gifted you. And then, as you're writing, you accidentally spill that ink on your rug that you bought at Dollar General. Well, if you spill that ink on your rug that you bought at Dollar General, you're going to be like, oh, that stinks. You know, you're going to be a little upset about it. You're like, man, I just bought that rug. But that was a dirt cheap rug anyway, right? Imagine if you would have spilt the same ink on a $50,000 Persian rug. Think about that. A rug that Bradford Manley Wheeler likes, you know? Those Persian rugs in his office. Think if you went in there, spilt that on his rug or on your rug you would be utterly distraught. You would be freaking out as soon as that thing tipped over the side of the table and just started to flood out. Your heart would utterly sink. It would, because that rug, that rug would be fully damaged. Though you spilled the same ink, why is it such a big deal? Because though you spilled the same ink, the rugs were of completely different value. The extent of the damage isn't determined by the size of the ink spots on the rugs, but by the value of the rugs. Every sin, no matter how insignificant that it is before God, or in your eyes, it's actually an affront to God's holy character and to his glory. As Jerry Bridges puts it in his book, Respectable Sins, the damage of God's glory by our sin is determined not by the severity of our sin, but by the value of God's glory. That's why. That's why it's a big deal and why we need to consider these. So what are some of those? God's armor applied, point number two. In this point, I'm not going to be addressing the chronic persistent issues with fear, anger, uh, with fear and anger, right? Like anxiety attacks. That's what we're not, go we're not going that route. Uh, we don't have time to hit all that. Um, but I, I do want to start with just those normal rhythms of anxiety and fear and anger uh, within our lives. So fear. Fear will often present itself to us in the form of anxiety or worry. It's all talking about the same kind of thing. All, all of those terms are. All of us are going to fall prey to anxiety at some point. We all do. And there are certainly good reasons to have concern for things throughout our lives, but that's not what I'm speaking about here. I'm speaking about it negatively. I like how one counselor defines anxiety. This is what he says anxiety is. When you get to the bottom of it, Anxiety is a God-given capacity for knowing that something bad is going on in your world, either in the past, present, or the future. To put it another way, anxiety is like an internal alarm system that is going off, that is signaling to you 
that something is wrong and you need to address it. It's the response to the circumstances of our lives. It arises when we fear that we won't get what we think that we need, we think that we want, or that we value. We get anxious because we've attached value to things that we can't control, things that are uncertain, right? There's a whole lot of fear and anxiety in the world today because of this pandemic. Our circumstances can influence our response in a given, cannot, they may influence our response in a given situation, but they can never initiate it. You've got to know that. Ultimately, anxiety is coming from within. It's coming from your own heart. It can influence you, but it's not going to initiate you to act a certain way. And thankfully, we all know when we get anxious, when we start to worry. What are symptoms, what are signs of anxiety in your life? Just shout them out. Unclean room. Oh, all right. That's interesting. I wasn't going there, but that's interesting. Uh, other, other signs. Okay, yep, isolation. That's a good one. Okay, lack of discipline. Sweat. What was it? Say it again. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, influences, yep. So I'm thinking of like symptoms. So like sweat, right? You start sweating. The body temperature goes up. Sleeplessness, pacing back and forth, tension throughout your body. That's often the way it is for me in my neck, like crazy tension. It could be obsessive thinking about something in particular that's, got, that's on your mind, and you're just obsessing over it, constantly thinking about it. Those things are meant to trigger you that there is something going on in your life, and you need to address it. That's a way that anxiety is going to show itself. Obviously, in the other things that we just talked about, with isolation, lack of discipline, those other areas. Jesus tells us explicitly in Matthew 6 to not be anxious. Why? Because anxiety is sin. Let's just get it out of the bag. Anxiety is sin. When we're anxious, we're living in sin. How is that? Because it's not trusting in God to provide in the face of uncertainty. It's not believing what God actually says about himself as a good, loving, and caring God toward his people in all circumstances. Anxiety is blind to God's sovereign control and his providence in working all things for your good and for his glory. It's blind to that. It ascribes more value to the things of this world than actually to God himself. And so what's happening is that people and circumstances have become big and God has become small in our hearts. It shows us how prideful we actually are. After all, the apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 6, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Well, how do you do that? How does he say to do that? By casting your anxieties on him. So like the way to humble yourself is by casting your anxieties upon the Lord, which means that we're prideful by becoming anxious thinking that we can somehow control the world. But why are we to cast our anxieties upon him? Because he cares for you. That's what Peter tells us. So anxiety isn't a purely psychological or emotional problem, and it's not just someone's natural disposition. Well, they're just more given to anxiety, and that's just, they're always going to be that way. Okay, maybe. But ultimately, it's a spiritual problem. It's an issue with the heart, and we've all got to deal with it from one degree to another. It's an issue of self-reliance. So how do we arm ourselves against anxiety? A couple of examples. Say social gatherings. Oh, yes. 
social gatherings like Sunday mornings, hangouts, whatever form throughout the week can cause indigestion for many of you. Having to meet with new people, talk with the same people, have to keep a conversation going, uh, fearing what others think about you when you're having that conversation, if you're an awkward conversationalist, right, totally internalizing the whole thing, you would rather withdraw isolation than engage. Many of us feel that way. Let's be honest with each other. Many of us feel that way. It's work to get to church on Sunday morning. But how do you respond? Here's how. We engage in war by putting on the belt of truth and reminding ourselves that Christ didn't disengage, but he came for us. We're never told whether Christ was an extrovert or whether he was an introvert. We're not given a whole lot of his personality, like he was just some big, boisterous kind of guy. We're never given any of that because he sought to love us where we were at. We wouldn't have a salvation if Christ feared man and disengaged. We need the belt of truth so we don't listen to the lies of Satan. Lies that you're alone, that this situation will never change. Lies that God doesn't care. Instead, what do we do? We remind ourselves that God commanded us not to fear. He promised us help. He promised us his presence. Study the character of God, the belt of truth. You've got to know the truth so that you can fight against anxiety. You can rest and be at peace when that anxiety comes. Take up the sword of the Spirit. How do you do that? You look more intently at passages like the Ten Commandments, where God promises people that I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You look at those promises. Take up the sword of the Spirit, God's word, and turn that into prayer, as we just saw Paul doing. Prayer for himself, prayer for others. Paul is in prison, mind you, in Ephesians right, when he's writing this letter. He's in prison, and yet he's not saying, hey, well, you, can, you just ask that I get delivered from prison. No, he's actually asking that he would speak boldly and clearly the gospel, which is crazy. He is so singularly minded. It's incredible. That's the way we want to get. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Know the word of God and turn that into prayer as you cast your anxieties upon the Lord. What about fear that comes with sharing the gospel? Oh, yeah. The problem is that our heart has magnified man's opinion over how God views us. We project often how we think others are receiving us on to other people, right? When we share the gospel, they're going to reject me. They're going to think I'm ludicrous. They're going to think, not the rapper, but, you know, the other thing. Does he even know who ludicrous still is? Is that just me? I'm just old. This is crazy. All right. We've got to have feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. We focus, right, our lives on the point of the proclamation. The point of why you're proclaiming the gospel is ultimately not your reputation, but other people's redemption. You do recognize that. Do you see how selfish we can become in fearing other people and not sharing the gospel? That's exactly what it is because we're focused more on our reputation than on their redemption. This is a gospel of peace, and we're sharing the peace of God with them so that they can be at peace with God. All right, let's turn now to anger. Turn now to anger. Often in our culture, we psychologize anger as if the problem only exists in us and not between us and God or us and other people. Anger is a relational problem. And by definition, this is, I think, what probably anger is. It's a feeling of strong displeasure towards someone or something that's blocking our plans or hopes. It's accompanied by sinful emotions, actions, words, 
that seek to take our anger out on someone else. In James 4, James asked the question of where our fights and quarrels among us as a body come from. Do they not come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have because ultimately you seek to spend it on your own pleasure. James is uncovering for us the cause of anger. It's selfishness. We want and we don't get, and so we get angry. Anger says, I want it my way. In essence, anger is really just wanting to be God. We're being honest. It's just wanting to be God. In James 1.20, James says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger is sin. It's sin. So I'll give you some examples. Often we're going to externalize our anger through harmful language toward others. We might belittle someone to others or vent our frustration to their face. Others can internalize their anger. They want to say that they're angry. They won't say that they're angry, but they actually, deep within, there is a resentment toward other people. That resentment breeds bitterness. That bitterness then turns into strife and conflict toward that person within their soul, though they never even said anything to the person. It can manifest itself in impatience, irritability, and having to wait on an answer that you really need but you don't ever get, right? Wanting things your way. We get angry at our parents for showing favoritism toward a sibling. We can grow bitter when others gossip about us or slander us. We can begin to resent someone because they didn't meet an expectation that we placed on them without them ever knowing it, which is crazy how often this happens. How many times do we throw expectations on people and they don't even ever know it? <laughs> And somehow they're supposed to uphold these expectations that we put on them, and we get angry when they don't meet those expectations. Happens a lot. Happens a lot. Or we get angry at God for not getting the job that we wanted, having the relationship that we long for, enduring suffering that ultimately we did not want. Anger will spread if left unresolved. So how do we arm ourselves for this war? Thankfully, Paul, literally, the whole book is basically about this. It's about living as children of the light. Paul in Ephesians 4, 31 through 32 says, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander, man, shouting, what a translation. I've yet to see a translation. It says shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Colossians 3, I just took some guys through this this past week. He gets at the same thing. As God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord is forgiving you, so you also are to forgive others. All of this is done in the context of a body of believers. You do recognize that. I mean, look how simple this is. This is not compelling in the world's eyes. Who in the world wants to go out putting on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience? Who wants to do that? That doesn't sound strong, but ultimately it is. This is what it looks like to deal with our anger, and we do this within the body of Christ. That's the context of Ephesians. You're gonna experience hurt from one another, and if we've been forgiven an eternal debt, then we can forgive somebody that's wronged us, anything. You literally ought to be able to forgive anything. If we're not able to, we have yet to fully understand the gospel. Do you recognize that? Go read Matthew 18. 
parable of the unforgiving servant. Wow, what a parable. You don't want what happened to him. It serves as a warning, but it also serves as a wonderful picture of what it means to be forgiven before God. So we put on the shield of faith by looking to the Lord in faith for protection from gossip, slander, or evil brought on us by others, right? It's protecting us. We resolve not to let our circumstances dictate our response, but to let the Lord who uh, has provided for us this faith. We trust in him with the evil that others bring upon us by forgiving them and bearing with others the sins that they commit against us. All of that is a reflection of just the shield of faith putting you put on in your life. Fairly simple. Not a 12-step process. But all these things are just armor that you're putting on. You're living a right life. That's the breastplate of righteousness. You're putting on the shield of faith. You're being protected. Why? Because you're trusting in the Lord when somebody comes and slanders you, when they gossip you, whenever they resent you, they speak evil of you, right? When there's conflict between you, you're trusting in the Lord. You seek reconciliation and forgiveness. Ultimately, Christ is the example of all of this, who did not revile whenever he was reviled, and yet sacrificed himself for the sins of others. He forgave those who were just unforgiving, and yet so that he would turn those into those who would forgive. All right, let me pray for us. We got to get to discussion groups. Father, we give praise to you uh, for the truths uh, that we can gain just from Ephesians 6 and putting on the whole armor of God. Lord, we pray that you would empower us by your spirit to do so. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.